Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well. Well, that's the hallucination, right? That's like AI hallucination. We have lives, too. <laughs> Mother Shipton's cave. Rich Haddam is coming. Jim Harold is coming. I'm doing a lot of laughing, is it? Mm-hmm. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Uncommon Goods, BetterHelp, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Smithfield, West Virginia, was founded in January of 1786. The Smith family had already been there nearly 90 years by that point, but their family name would not stick. Because, as history often shows, locals find more practical names for their communities. By 1807, Smithfield became known as Middleway because its location was central to the trade for several surrounding towns, and there was another Smithfield, about 150 miles away in Tidewater. But there was another name that snuck onto the book sometime before 1790. Wizard Clip. The odds are pretty good you've not heard of Wizard Clip, but maybe you're familiar with the story of the Bell Witch, or even Jeff the Talking Mongoose. If so, you may have been primed for the story that lends Wizard Clip its name. There are many similar elements to those other stories, but there are also strange and unusual differences. The story traces back to the early 19th century when an unknown stranger sought shelter at Adam Livingston's home. As the story goes, the stranger fell ill during his stay and asked for a Catholic priest to administer the last rites. This request was not met, and the stranger passed away without receiving this final sacrament. Following his death, strange events began to manifest within the Livingston household. The family started hearing a persistent sound similar to the snipping of scissors. At the same time, they discovered clothing and other items like boots and harnesses inexplicably cut into shapes resembling a crescent moon or a wizard clip. The Livingston house also experienced increased paranormal activities, including phenomena suggestive of demonic possession. The situation escalated so much that Father Prince Galitsyn, a Russian royal, was brought in to perform an exorcism. After this spiritual intervention, the paranormal activities began to slow and eventually halted. Whether this part of the story is apocryphal or not, in 2005, Father Galitsyn was designated a servant of God by the Pope. This is the first step on the road to canonization. With the success in abating the strange influences of the wizard clip, the formerly Lutheran Adam Livingston converted to Catholicism and donated around 35 acres of his land to the Catholic Church. That land, although disputed in the past, still belongs to the church today, and it is known as Priest Field. Years ago, a gentleman named Michael Kishbooker joined our volunteer research group, the Astonishing Research Corps. Mike has a master's degree in the science of strategic intelligence from the Department of Defense, as well as a master of strategy degree from Air War College. He was a shoo-in for doing what our friend Marie Mayhew refers to as free search for the show, and he has just published his second book since joining us, 
the Appalachian legend of the wizard Clip, America's first poltergeist from the History Press. Mike has comprehensively documented the story of this haunting with the assistance of Heather Moser, an Appalachian folklore expert, lead researcher, and producer for Small Town Monsters. And tonight, they both join us as we attempt to unravel the tale of the wizard Clip. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. On one gruesome afternoon, a lady visitor was complimenting Mrs. Livingston on a fine flock of ducks waddling through her yard on their way, perhaps to the neighboring Apacon Creek, when clip-clip with the uncanny and invisible shears. One after another, the ducks were cleanly decapitated in broad daylight before the very eyes of the ladies and many other witnesses. Historian Joseph Berry, as quoted in the Appalachian legend of the wizard clip. And we're back, and what a month October was. Yes, it was a lot of fun, but this is Astonishing Legends, and the weirdness continues, Ooh, especially indeed. tonight. But first, a few very quick announcements. If you're among the folks who enjoyed the latest new show from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time, it is now living exclusively on its own feed. So look for Scared All the Time wherever you get your podcasts. And the Midnight Library is fast approaching 5 million downloads of its own now. So that's another show to find and subscribe to if you haven't already. Two other quick announcements. If you've been a long, and I mean long-time listener of Astonishing <laughs> wow. Legends, then you may remember one of our very first guest hosts, Mark DeAndre. That's right. Mark was in our very first episode back in October of 2014 about the tragic death of Hollywood B starlet and former Playboy model Yvette Vickers. He then returned for episode six, Celebrity Cemetery, and once again for episode 17 called Collections and Connections. And I must say, he is one of the finest tour guides I have ever come across, especially for Hollywood lore, the gruesome kind. It's funny you should say that because he has started his very own podcast, ah. You Are My Density. That's the name of it, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he's a tour guide on this in a lot of ways. Yeah. This is not an Astonishing Legends show, folks. This is just a good friend of ours doing his own thing. But he's a fun guy to listen to, and I've heard all the ones he's done so far, and I think it's pretty great. Yeah. It's a bit stream of consciousness, but Mark has a great voice, tons of intense esoteric knowledge, as Forrest just said, right. about Hollywood, weird celebrity encounters, and, well, it's just kind of indescribable, but it's a fun show if you're, if you're looking for something weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny you put that with Mark. Anyway, yeah. folks, he's just starting out. He's had no promotion, and we want him to keep doing it, so look for You Are My Density wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a listen and subscribe if you dig it. You may even hear him refer to his friend Scott in a few episodes. Okay, last announcement, merch. Mm. The knit caps or beanies or toboggans or whatever you call mm -hmm. them in your part mm -hmm. of the country are back in stock. So just head to astonishinglegends.com and scroll down the page and click on go to store to see that stuff. Yeah, toques. All right, folks, we've got a great show for you tonight. But before we bring our esteemed guests in... We'd like to share with you one of the initial accounts of the legend of the wizard clip. Yes, as you'll learn tonight, there are several accounts of this story, which is the case with all legends, of course. But on the plus side, Mike Kishbooker has dug up literally every single available one for us to talk about uh, and talk about what's similar and different between them. But we wanted to start with what Mike calls a slightly edited version made available to him by the Middleway Historical Conservancy. This version was published in 1936 and was written by R. Helen Bates. We're taking it from pages 18 through 20 of the Appalachian Legend of the Wizard Clip. The Legend of the Wizard Clip 
In the southern part of historical Jefferson County, West Virginia, nestled among the foothills of the Blue Ridge, lies the ancient village of Wizard Cliff. The land upon which the village is located was included in the grants made to Mr. William Smith in 1729 by Sir William Gooch, who was the proprietor of that part of Virginia at that time. Surrounded by majestic hills, this, the first home of Wizard Cliff, was placed in a gloomy hollow near a bottomless lake. Among those that obtained land grants for Mr. Smith was a man named Livingston. Mr. Livingston selected land lying along Opacon Creek, but also adjoining the village. One night when the sky was inky black, the rain descended in torrents, and the winds rushed through the desolated pines with a wild bellow. A weary stranger presented himself at Mr. Livingston's door. With genial hospitality, the traveler was welcomed. A few hours after retiring, the stranger sent for Mr. Livingston and told him he was ill unto death. He requested that a Catholic priest might be sent for at once. Mr. Livingston was a bigoted man who hated the Catholic Church and swore no priest should enter his house. The stranger, to whom no name has been given, repeatedly begged that a priest be brought, but his host was obdurate. At the odd hour of midnight, while the elements fought their terrible battle, the soul of the stranger, unblessed and unshriven, took its flight. The next day, his body was buried in unconsecrated ground. For many years, his grave was pointed out to the curious. Then, a curse seemed to rest upon Mr. Livingston and his possessions. A murrain seized his cattle. Strange and mysterious sounds were heard about the house, and things were as though ruled by a demon. More dreadful than aught else was clear, distinct, insistent clipping clipping which went on day and night. The bed linen, family and visitors' clothing, saddles, bridles, and harness were all clipped and always in crescent or half-moon shape. Nothing was sacred from the terrible shears. The witches and wizards were now holding high revels. Mr. Livingston, pursued by the horror of all this, dreamed a vivid dream in which he saw a man who promised to help him. On Sunday, his wife, a devoted Catholic, persuaded him to go with her to a Catholic service at Shepherdstown. The instant Mr. Livingston saw the priest, he cried out with streaming eyes, That is the man who could rid me of the witches! The priest was told the story. The next day, he visited the home of Mr. Livingston at Smithfield, Middleway, sprinkled some holy water on the house's threshold, prayed fervently, and consecrated the ground wherein the stranger lay buried. He declared deliverance had come. Sure enough, the clipping ceased, the witches were laid, and Mr. Livingston was free. Moved by gratitude, he gave the Catholic Church 40 acres along the Opacon. The church still owns this land and receives rent from it. It is known as the priest's place. For four or five generations, it was in the care of the Mangini family. Recently, however, the church assumed control. A chapel has been erected on this site, and outdoor meetings are held frequently. It is the ideal spot for camping, and the church has extended its use as such to all. The spell cast upon the old village of Cliff still lingers upon it, and the bottomless lake through which the witches are said to have rushed when the priests exercised them is still here, and the Apacon flows on, now calmly, now wildly, 
by the lonely grave of the stranger. R. Helen Bates, as quoted in the Appalachian legend of the wizard clip. All right, folks, we would like to welcome Michael Kishbooker and Heather Moser to the show. They're joining us tonight to talk about the Appalachian legend of the wizard clip. We've given you a little bit of background on them, but now they're here with us. We've known both of them for a long time, so this is a little bit of old home week. But Mike and Heather, thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll start with you, Mike. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? I work for the uh, Department of Defense. Started off in the Air Force at 20 years old. Um, I work intelligence. Been doing it for 25 years now. Now I'm a civilian in federal service with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Okay. And that's all you can tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, also thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, yourself and your background? I am a researcher and producer for the documentary film company Small Town Monsters. I am also an author. Although I haven't had a book out yet, I have had articles in various uh, journals and magazines. I'm also a classics professor at Kent State University. So Greek and Roman history and folklore as far as that goes, and Appalachian born and raised. So my love is here at home. And Heather was a huge, huge help with this project. I mean, she wrote entire sections of it. There was enough for me to try to wrap my head around just the wizard clip stuff, and then I had to figure out Bell Witch as well. And I was like, man, I'll just ask Heather. <laughs> you see it in every movie. It's like, I have to go, I, what's going on? I got to get to the library. Or you find a professor, and that's exactly what Mike did. I was Quick question, though, Heather. Were you at the Kent Paranormal Weekend way back in, was it 2017, Scott? I was not. Yeah, that's where we met Seth and Jim Harold. James Willis. And yeah, that would turned out to be a pivotal. Jill and Roger. Yeah, it, it's just weird. It's a lot of fun. And that theater is spooky. The tour, we did some tours in there. And that's where we got introduced to the, um, the Haunted Housewives were there. And they had a DR60 recorder, which is what made us buy one, which led us to our whole Sally House experience. So, I mean, it was at the center of the spider web, you could say. That's where yeah. I had downloaded the Spirit Storybox app, which they developed. And so there's a lot of connections that came forth from there. But just the theater itself is quite historic. And that's another example of trying to maintain, like Priest's Field Center that we're going to talk about here in a bit, of maintaining something with some historical background in a small town, which doesn't get a lot of visitors, but is a very important part of the local lore and legends in that it is kind of the center of town. So again, aside from being haunted in that aspect, it's a great magnet to draw people in. And Mike, could you tell us a little bit about the Pig Lady Festival and some of the uh, the other festivals and folklore where you actually, all three of you met a couple of years ago? Yeah, I started this festival and it's focused on this local legend from a very small town in Pennsylvania. My dad and I wanted to focus more on folklore and traditional storytelling and traditional Halloween type events, more like a harvest festival rather than, you know, Right. The jump scares and clowns chasing around, stuff like that. So we started that in 2019. And then, of course, 2020, COVID shut us down. And then in 2021, I invited Scott and I was shocked when he said he'd come. Because <laughs> it's a very small little event. Then when he showed up, of course, things got weird. And they were just, you say, like the rabbit hole of a paranormal discussion. So Brian's speech started the, the weird discussion. He, we asked him to talk about the Portage County chase because it blew right through there, if you're familiar with that legend. You drove down Route 51 where they chased it. That's right. To get there. He started with that. He talked for 
15 minutes about it. And then somehow by the end, we were talking about Bigfoot and everything under the sun. (laughs) (laughs) We get, we get a little off track. Yeah. (laughs) And that year we showed small town monsters, chestnut Ridge. Oh yes. Yes, Classic. Yep. Chestnut Ridge. Yep. And Heather introduced it. So that was great. That's where I got to meet Heather for the first time. Well then how did you get interested in the wizard clip story? I wrote a book in 2016, 2016 through 2019. I wrote a book about the pig lady and some of the other local legends that were from my hometown. One of the books I researched is Devil's Ghost and Witches, Occult Folklore of the Upper Ohio Valley by a very famous folklorist named George Swetnam. He included the pig lady story in there and then also the wizard clip. And those are the two stories that jumped out as being super weird. I always wanted to research it and, uh, when I got down here in Virginia and I was so close by to Midway, it just seemed right to do. So in 2020, I think the Seth was doing a live stream and I was sitting around a campfire because, you know, couldn't do anything with my daughters listening to it. And uh, I was talking about some other haunting in, in West Virginia and it popped up in my head and I, I just typed into the chat, hey, what about the wizard clip? And he had never heard of it. So I was like, maybe I need to do something about this. Yeah. Heather, were you familiar with it all that much before your connection here with Mike? I was not familiar with it. I had come across it once while reading through Ruth Ann Music's uh, work, but it was something that didn't really stick out to me as far as that goes. And uh, then when Mike brought it up and reminded me, I was like, wait a second, there's some similarities here. This sounds somewhat familiar. To remind our listeners, by the way, you're an expert on the Bell Witch case, among other in the region. So you must have thought, because I hadn't heard of it either until Mike mentioned it to me. I was like, what? How can we not know of this story? It's so strange. Yeah. So the main f- main family are the Livingstons. So a rather large Lutheran family that moved from Pennsylvania to Virginia um, in the 1770s. When they became overwhelmed with the poltergeist activity after years of it, they sought help from several different religions and none of them provided relief. They all were thwarted one way or the other. So Adam had a dream in one of the versions that a priest could provide him help. So he went to the only Catholic family in the neighborhood, and they were four miles away, and these were the McSherrys. McSherrys were the ones that were able to put the Livingstons in touch with Father Cahill, who was the head priest in Shepherdstown, which was 36 miles away. He was the first to attempt an exorcism. It wasn't really an exorcism. It was more like a home blessing. Mm-hmm. And... um he then realized that the, the, the activity was stronger than he originally understood. So as is today, exorcisms don't just happen willy-nilly. They have to be investigated. They have to be approved by a bishop. So Bishop Carroll, once he had read the letter from what well, we assume a letter from Dennis Cahill, sent Father Glitzen to investigate. So an outside party. He spent three months investigating this activity and became thoroughly convinced that an exorcism was needed. He allegedly attempted the first exorcism once permission was given and didn't have the willpower to go through with it all. He got scared and ran from the house, ended up going, finding Dennis Cahill, who was supposedly a big brawny Irishman that was not afraid of this stuff. That's (laughs) another sign, as you had uh, pointed out in the book of possession, there's three criteria that have to be met. The second is obsession, the third being possession, which is the worst, but I believe the second one 
is feats of strength, <laughs> isn't that? And not the festivist kind. Yeah. The first one is just kind of a haunting. Yeah. The second one is more of like an attack on the family, mm-hmm. physical attacks. And then the third one is possession where a body is is possessed or a house. In this case, it was the house they were exercising. Right, right. Yeah, Galitzin was kind of young when this was happening. He was, This is only in his first, I think, first five years within his arrival in the U.S. Um, so Dennis Cahill would have been the senior priest. So he was the one that was able to exercise the home. And then that's when the visitor appeared in their living room a week later and started teaching them about the Catholic Church. And then the voice came after that. So I think in terms of documentation, uh, because that is so complicated and there's a lot of documentation, which you've managed to track everything down on, that's why people need to find this book, because it gives you such a great timeline. And again, just reminding our listeners, this is The Appalachian Legend of the Wizard Clip, America's First Poltergeist by Michael Kishbooker. Hey, this is Zach from Moser, the band in Adelaide, Australia. You're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now... Let's get back to the show. You know, and it, also one of the things I like about your approach, Mike, is being a logical and uh, reasoned person and having to maintain that position and your background uh, with your degrees and your experience and looking at these kinds of stories and taking that approach as your primary approach, it leads you to investigate things in a different way from 99% of the people in our field. <laughs> I would say like, yeah, and I really like that. And that's something I've enjoyed about whenever we've hung out in person. And then also just when we're communicating online, I feel like I know in your, at the basis of what you're doing, you're like, you're really following the folklore here, but you're, it's going to be a pretty tall order to convince you that something magical actually happened. Am I right? I focused a lot of this on the, the theme of belief. Yes. That first book I wrote was more about finding the truth. This one, I didn't care about finding the truth. I, I wanted to figure out why people believed what they believed right, and cause them to act on it. I mean, there's, there's real history there. This really affected people's lives. So that was my motivation. That's a really great approach. So I, and I think that's part of what makes it so interesting. One of the things I want to quote you, something you said on page 15, you said too, that I, of course, love this quote, skepticism can be helpful, but cynicism is often a bully's tool which I thought was a really great line and really useful. And that's, again, what I liked about how you went into this. So we have the Livingston family. Can you, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about their background and who the various people are that are afflicted with this at the outset? Well, Adam's the protagonist. He's, well, there's varying versions that say that, uh, you know, he's got like six kids. Some say that's eight, you know, it depends on who tells the story. But uh, he's got a large family. His first wife died in Pennsylvania probably before he moved to Virginia. But he inherited property in Virginia from his father who had purchased land sight unseen. But I guess that was common for the time. He just never got to use it. So uh, Adam inherited it and moved his family and his enslaved people with them to Virginia and started a farm his property adjoined his sister and brother-in-law's property. So they had a very large chunk of land there. It was like uh, 150, 160 acres, right? Or something of that nature. Adams was about 350. And then his sister's sister's was another 150. So when he got there, he's no longer a young man. He's he's probably, he's up in in his 30s or 40s or somewhere in there. His first wife had passed away. And so now he's his second wife. And so he's living in this area. And so at the onset of this story, 
What's the first thing that starts to happen to him? The first thing that happened that was odd was they were gathered around uh, the fireplace, the hearth, one fall evening. It was a crisp evening. And um, the fire just started shooting out of the fireplace and logs on fire would shoot across the floor and they would have to run around trying to put it out before their cabin caught fire. Right. And they thought that was weird. They eventually just put the fire out and suffered from the cold because it wouldn't stop doing it. And then lots of odd things began within that first week. Their farm laid along a route that's still there today that was prominent for um, transport of goods between two large cities for the time, Winchester and Shepherdstown. And uh, for some reason, these Teamsters would pull up these large wagons loaded with goods and stop in front of the house and start berating the family but they would see a large rope tied across the road stopping them and the family couldn't see it. It wasn't there. So mm. <laughs> this happened for um, a couple of weeks. So just for some reason, this thing started um, either trying to burn the house down or, or make them look bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Heather, are there, are there details? It's been a minute for me, like that are similar in the bell, Witch with that kind of thing. No, with the Bell Witch, it, it started with uh, John Bell seeing a creature that looked fairly odd, half dog, half rabbit kind of situation. Right. right. And then uh, scratches and gnawing on bedposts and things like that, but not something that would have been seen in the community until they had started inviting people in to help them kind of solve what was going on. Right. Okay. Once this stuff starts happening, one of the things that you talk about, Mike, is that a lot of the details throughout history seem to come from the McSherry family. Almost all of them, yeah. Who were the McSherrys? Because, again, another parallel with the Bell family is that a lot of that Bell family story is connected to their neighbors as well. They're the only witnesses, or the, the closest witnesses. They're part of the story as well. And so you have with the Bell family... The Johnstons. The Johnstons being neighbors and also tellers of the story and keepers of that story. And even a couple of years ago, we turned Mike onto a book written by one of the descendants of the Johnston family. And here with the Livingstons, their neighbors are very involved, except that they're, I guess, opposites culturally and financially. They're very well-to-do. They're Irish immigrant merchants who did very well and have some respect in the village, as these other families did as well. Same thing with the Bells. Why do you think all the details come to us from the McSherrys? I wrestled with this question for a long time because I don't understand why some of the investigators that wrote the earliest versions of the story didn't go talk to Adam. He was still around. Yeah. So they would go to the McSherrys. Maybe it's because they were still there in Midway. I don't know. But it did, it bothered me a lot because Adam didn't move that far away, and he had his, all his kids were there. He moved to Bedford, Pennsylvania, which... It's far for a horseback, sure. but if you're really that interested in figuring out what happened, go talk to the main person. <laughs> right, right. Well, the other odd thing is that the family members of the McSherrys didn't all agree on the happenings, right? They disagreed with each yeah. other's accounts, and the patriarch, well, there's two brothers, so Richard McSherry kind of denied any of the happenings, and, and it seemed like he wanted to distance himself from the whole debacle, because he's a businessman. He's got, you know, he doesn't need this kind of publicity. Yeah, and his two sons as well. One was a doctor and the other one was a lawyer, and they both denied it as well. It's the female members of the family that really added to the story and, and made it grow and made sure that it ended up in newspapers and things like that. 
let's talk a little bit about the story itself and all the varying versions of it. And because when you went to Middleway, when you went to the town, did you find that one particular version was more prominent for the locals than the other? Or they just embraced the whole thing? Still, there's a major difference today in Middleway from the locals. The one they hand out is the R. Helen Bates version from the Conservancy. Okay. And that's, you know, very focused on witchcraft. And But if you go on to Priestfield, which is also in Middleway, then they tell their version, which is more about the conversion of a Lutheran family that was tormented by a demon. Right. Now, is that mostly encapsulated in what you have in the book as the, the Woodstock letters? Our Helen Bates, her story would come out around 1936. The Woodstock letters around 1907, so a much earlier version of an even earlier episode of events. Is that what you're talking about when that's more of a different view of the two competing views? It's very different. The oldest versions are, are from the church. I think 1817 is the oldest recorded version. And if you read it today, it's only about 20 pages. It's very different than the R. Helen Bates version. Right. It doesn't mention the occult at all, really. It talks about a haunting, but you know, there's no witches or other folks attacking the family that are mortal. For folks that haven't read the book yet, what would you say leads to the differences between just those two versions, for example? I really think it has to do with your um, your religious upbringing. Uh, if you were brought up Protestant in that time frame, ghosts didn't exist. When you died, you either went straight to heaven or hell, whereas Catholics believe that uh, folks in purgatory could affect day-to-day lives. Okay. That's a major component of at least the spiritual attack, the spiritual oppression element of the story in that the family is harassed uh, physically and eventually verbally in all sorts of ways. And, and they're uh, experienced a lot of property damage and their, their cattle died, the barn burnt down, all the classic stuff. But in the Catholic version, having that middle ground between heaven and hell in that version of the story where the voices again, one version claimed to have been, and that's why they are tormented and need help from the family, is that they are stuck in purgatory. They require prayers and penitence and a lot of help from the living. Another aspect of a good ghost story is that you know the, the ghost comes back and wants you to help them solve their murder, or they have a message to relay, right. so they need help from the living. They can't. They can do all these fabulous stuff, except they still need human help. You know, they can do all these supernatural feats, but they still demand uh, attention mostly and favors from the living. So in the Catholic version, you're saying is that that element of, of a belief in purgatory adds a lot to that aspect of the story as a cautionary tale, but also as a source of drama. I think so. Yeah. Um, the, the main difference is Protestants at that time felt that if you were being attacked spiritually, it was because some human was conjuring something to attack you. Okay. So it's like a curse in a way. Yeah. So a witch. Right, right. Or a witch or whatever. So they're conjuring something. Wow. Okay. So that's mm-hmm. fascinating to me. I don't have a great understanding of the theological differences and didn't until I read your book really get the big picture of the theological differences and how those filters would be affecting the telling of these stories. And so one of the things that I took away from it is like, there's really a, a pretty big mixture of whatever people thought actually happened as the storytellers, a term you use a lot, which again, you know, we're storytellers, we're all kind of storytellers, but when you put that label on these folks that are relaying this folklore throughout the decades, and then you think about each storyteller's 
character Bible, really, for like, you know, my wife's a writer, so I'm talking, I'm using writer's terms, but like, they do, they have a background and, you know, what is their religion? What is the time period they're living in? What are the prevalent concerns in this time period? And what are the concerns specifically relating to their religion? And you do a really good job of explaining that and how that's affecting the story. So I guess one of my questions for you is, do you guys think that one of the things that happens that makes the story more complicated is that any meandering details that are added are done because the storyteller at that particular version is trying really hard to weave in details that advance their personal narrative. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, any good storyteller is going to elaborate a bit right, and make it their own. Um, so that's why I included everything that I could find, whether it was written as something factual by one of the priests that were writing histories or one of the folklorists like Ruth, Ruth Ann Music. I, I included it all. I didn't want to leave anything out because it's it's all interesting and it all adds to the story. So when in addition to like personalizing it though, do you think maybe there's agendas at hand on the part of whatever theological institution they're representing at any given moment? Like, okay, well, this is how we feel or we're trying to squash what's happening with spiritualism or we're trying to squash whatever, you know, come to the church or come to this specific church. Go, Don't go to that one because if you go to that one, like they're all trying to take control. This is what could happen. Look what can go wrong if you start dabbling in the dark arts or whatever. So mm-hmm. does that seem like that's what you thought was happening as you uncovered these different versions? For the church versions, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they were very anti-Lutheran, very anti-Reformation. I mean, it was dripping with it. It was obvious. It wasn't. Right. They weren't trying to, to hide in their bias. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're piggybacking. This story's already out there. It almost might not even matter if they believe it as much as they're like, oh, look what we can do with this. We Suddenly we have a megaphone. You know, it's like they've just been gifted a, a brand new TV and TV hasn't been invented yet. And they're going to go on the air and tell all these because they know it's going to go viral. And it's like, can we mm-hmm. get on top of this? We're going to put our message on the back of it, regardless of what really went on there. Do you think that's a possibility? Oh no! And if you look at the, the time frames, when it, the two times that it was written about heavily, in the early um, eighteen seventeen to eighteen twenty-five, eighteen thirty-ish, that was right around the Second Great Awakening when Protestant revivals were huge across the country. So you can see why the Catholic historians would have found use or utility in the story of a family, a Protestant family that was being tormented for years and couldn't find any really any help from any Protestant service until the Catholic uh, preacher came riding in on his horse and saved the day. I mean, there, there's, I don't want to call it propaganda, yeah. but it, that's probably the best word. And I was going to say the second time was during spiritualism. Father Fanati's version was written in 18, I'm going to get this wrong, 1879, 1894, I can't remember off the top of my head, but right there in the height of spiritualism. The Fox sisters starting in the 1840s, 1850s, around that time. And so it, it over mm-hmm. the next couple of decades, it's really building up ahead of steam, which also, as we covered in the Arweja series, the popularity of that uh, family, delightful family board game, also rode the back (laughs) of spiritism, spiritualism, those movements, and also as a backdrop, now at the first part of the 20th century, you have World War I and a lot of death and suffering, and there's a lot of sociocultural aspects that played into the popularity of that movement and those ideas. And it's the same thing here. What are then some of the other story elements? Because, you know, I come at this all very fascinated by the background of, of politics and religion as it played into early American uh, political formations, starting from the founding fathers who were more deist and that they think 
you know, they believe it's like, well, there is a creator, but he's kind of hands off. So the rest of this stuff is you folks going kind of nuts here and bringing your old ways traditions from Europe. And it's, it's creating a lot of strife. And so you have these competing backdrops of American enlightenment ideals that have come from Europe and some of those great thinkers. And that's also come with the migration of a lot of uh, European Im immigrants. But before we move on, what were some of the other story elements? Because I also look at this, as I said, I'm fascinated by the other backdrops, but just as pure story and as a narrative and how that gets transmuted over the decades into fitting something that works for a lot of people or they use it, as Scott said, they, it's piggybacked onto as a medium that people can use to their own, for their own devices. What are some of the other differences between the bait story version and the other common tellings as, as far as stories? Like you could talk about the stranger or the, uh, the burning, you know, it, it just, it takes another turn. So what are some of those other story elements that differ from a more generalized Bates version? The Bates version or the more of a folkloric versions, all of them really stop with the poltergeist okay, activity. Right. So the voice is not addressed in hardly any of the more folkloric versions, or I call them secular in the book, but they're Protestant versions. Yeah. So the voice, um, I found the voice to be incredibly similar to the Bell Witch. Right. Uh, it, was, it started as a small little things go missing, you hear bump in the night, scratching, and then full-on poltergeist activity, stuff flying around the house, things catching on fire. And then a voice emerges. In the Catholic version, there was an exorcism that was in between mm -hmm. there, and they're two different entities. So that's the main difference between the Bell Witch story and, and this story. But uh, I'm not so sure that's how the earliest storytellers right. came up with the original narrative. Right. For our listeners, what kinds of things was the voice saying to people? <laughs> the voice was very critical. It complained about a lot. It didn't <laughs> like how people dressed. It didn't like how people prayed. It would it would scream for prayers all night long, pretty much. But it also is credited with converting the family to Catholicism. So a lot of the church versions talk about being a sweet and caring entity that brought them into the church because the services were so disparate. Mm. There's too far to get to a priest. you know. So this thing came and taught them how to do all the catches. <laughs> it's an early uh, church Zoom meeting during the lockdowns. It's just kind of, we'll come to right. you and admonish you for everything you're doing. Uh, a, a quick question, Heather, or this story element of the voice as both giving advice and berating people and and, and putting them down and, and with the usual insults and all the other paranormal aspects of biolocation, knowing things from the future, uh, you know, premonition. Do you find that a lot in other folktales that involved a supernatural aspect? Actually, no, I don't, I don't come across that very hmm. often with the bell, Witch. that, that story is so in depth with the characteristics, the behavior, the attitude that she had, it was so in detail that you don't really come across that level of communication in other regular folktales. Right. So no, I don't get a lot of stories of a, of a spirit or ghost or witch or hobgoblin or however you may yeah. want to classify it criticizing a family or saying that they're ready to kill somebody and not giving a reason why right. or coming up with a million excuses as to who they are just to laugh at you when you're trying <laughs> to prove whether that's true or not. Right. Yeah. That's not very common. Not very common. I mean, you know, we all grew up with 
fairy tales from childhood. And a lot of the times you see this, the other scenario, as far as the story goes, is that there's no story element of outsmarting the visitor, of tricking them, and there's no seeming moral to it other than like, do all this really outrageous and troublesome stuff, this really inconvenient stuff, like uh, the voice was telling them later, the, uh, the disembodied voice that eventually emerged. Well, also both in the Bell story and in the Wizard Clip story, in that it's like, you're going to have to now pray for three, four hours a day. I'm going to keep you up all night. And it's mm -hmm. a tall order. It's a big ask for a family. And it's like, okay, we're doing this, but you're trying to instruct us. And, you know, uh, we've turned around and thanks for stopping the trouble that you apparently caused now that we're doing this, but there's no end to it. It just kind of goes away. And so all these other stories, you got a beginning, middle, and end. The hero wins, rides off into the sunset, gets the pot of gold, whatever it is. In this, it's just basically like, well, eventually we'll kind of stop tormenting you. And <laughs> then you're going to have a, a regular life on top of your already very much filled with toil and uh, and hard work and, and disease and shortened lives. I mean, that's the, the sense that I got from this story is that you have these other elements that are supposed to be instructional, but it's really kind of loose. And Heather, you don't see that with other folktales. Is there more of a conclusive ending? Is there more of like, and that's what you don't do? Or you know, like, Yes. Well, for one, in a lot of folktales, they're a lot shorter. Yeah. So there's not, not as much detail, but the whole point is to tell you a lesson, to teach you something. So yeah, there is a conclusion where with the Bell Witch, something like that, I mean, John Bell dies and we still don't know why why she yeah. chose him, why he was being tormented so much. And there was really nothing they could do to ease the pain and, and conflict and torment that she was giving the family. So, right. but in a lot of folktales, they're more like lessons, moral stories. And that's not so clear cut when it comes to something like the Bell Witch. At least they only had to deal with it for four years, right? That's <laughs> true. That's true. And poor Livingston's were haunted by the poltergeist for seven or eight years. And then the voice came and yeah. stayed with them another 17. Yeah. I still want to talk about one fascinating fictional, perhaps, player to the story. We still don't know. And he appears in certain versions and, and not in others. The appearance of the mystical stranger who shows up. Because in the Wizard Clip story, there's actually two. First is the stranger on a the dark and stormy night who looks for shelter at uh, death's door. In this case, the Livingston door. And is given hospitality as per social rules back then and was given a bed, except denied one thing in that the stranger being, they think in one story version, an Irish Catholic traveler of uh, perhaps a menial worker down on his luck goes in and is at near death. And so during one night, he believes that he doesn't have long to live. He asks Adam Livingston if a priest could be sent. And as Mike alluded to earlier, like the local church was not just a couple blocks down by the Dairy Queen. This is a long ways to go for 40 miles versus yeah, 36 yeah. miles. Yeah, quite a long ways on horseback in the middle of the night. And for whatever reason, and again, the two versions that differ uh, between Bates and the Woodstock story is that uh, in one I read, generally Adam Livingston is a nice man, pious, except that he was bigoted against Catholics and refused to send for a priest. A priest would not step through his doorway. The other version of the story is that his wife, I guess in the first one, that she is a devout Catholic and tries to convince him, but it's too late. It eventually tries to convince 
Adam, her husband, to attend Catholic Church, and that's where he gets his salvation eventually. In the other version, though, is that the wife was not devout, and this conversion to Catholicism from Protestantism happens through a dream that Adam has. In both versions, though, this, the stranger shows up, is denied, and that denial is the start of their problems, and that now this person's in purgatory, crying out for help. Adam needs to be shown his bigoted ways and come around again. And so that's the plot device of the stranger showing up. And we don't know to this day if there ever was a stranger. Do either of you believe that that was more a story element that's fictional? Or perhaps maybe there was a visitor and that was a just a plot point that actually happened, which is just adds to the drama of the story and, and makes it more listenable. I think there was a visitor in one of the letters, the um, mm-hmm. Father Galitzin re- references a visitor that was Irish Catholic and got spooked by the haunting and said, you really should get a priest. And, and he said, ah, I've tried some of those before. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to bother. But he didn't die. He just left. <laughs> so I think <laughs> right. folks, you know, storytellers use that plot point to try and explain why the yeah. haunting was happening. There was no reason giving for the haunting, kind of like the problem with why the bell witch hated John Bell. We still don't know. Right. So it was like, this is what makes this part of the story work. We can't find this. We need, we either need cognitive closure or we need the story to work better so that our message works better with it or something to that effect. Exactly. Yeah. The earliest version I could find was a version where somebody was murdered in the house and was buried and that person was coming back to cause the haunting. And this was before the stranger narrative got, I guess, solidified later on. But when I was researching that, I found I was also reading a book on spiritualism at the same time for some reason. And I found it very interesting that the Fox sisters, their ev- events started off with a poltergeist as well, yeah. who claimed to have been murdered by John Bell. He said he was killed by somebody yeah, named John Bell. There you go. This whole thing uh, just started with my curiosity about looking at the land deed and seeing that when Adam sold his property in 1809, the rest of the property they didn't give to the church, it was sold to two brothers named Bell. Right. And a confirmation bias, I just thought, okay, so these are related to the Bells in Tennessee. They moved the story to, you know, a little west and changed it. You contacted me when you made that realization. My cognitive bias was like, oh, see, there it's everybody's haunted. And yours was like, oh, they took the story. The story traveled this way. And I'm like, no, the ghost traveled this way. So I just thought that's that's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Is this just part of human experience that we have? We think of the same tropes and we think of the same elements in our ghost stories and we just bring them wherever we go. I think that a lot of that is exactly what happens. Um, Even going back to the idea of the stranger, that's something that we've had in our consciousness since at least the Roman times, the mm-hmm. story of Bacchus and Philemon, you know, entertaining gods and not realizing it. It was just right. some strangers that had been turned away and that ends up becoming a boon for them later in life. Well, very soon later in life, actually, as the city was destroyed by a flood. But um, I think that this is something that, that we do take bits and pieces and it allows us then later as historians to go back and we can extrapolate different sections and see where all of these threads have gone through and you can find where, okay, these are the Scotch-Irish beliefs. I I get that. I see how that came in. But yeah, I think that with a lot of stuff, that's exactly what we do. Now, I reference an older story that's Scotch-Irish in there called The Devil of Glenluce. Oh, which is amazingly similar, just freakily. so similar. Yeah. Even the clipping, the fire. And uh, yeah, so you can see how a lot of stories like that can 
travel with with immigrants right um and you know so that the area where the middle way is today was was very heavily scotch irish do you feel like you found a path uh, a clear path of how that might have happened in the case of the wizard clip i think um that's definitely a very big possibility but that's only one of them that's why i included an alternative analysis in in the book Right. right right I am so excited to tell our listeners about this new podcast because it's co-hosted by one of my dearest friends in the world, Mm. Rachel Dratch. Now, for those of you who don't know who Rachel is, she was on Saturday Night Live for seven years, five of which my wife Emily was there for too. If you're still unsure I'm talking about, I bet you know who Debbie Downer is. That was one of her many hilariously brilliant characters. (laughs) Yes, that famous sketch that came apart live on the air. I was there when it happened, and it was amazing. But, But the other thing about Rachel is that we spent a lot of time hanging out over the years, and she's honestly as fascinated with the paranormal as we are here. And it's no surprise to me at all that she's launched her own comedy podcast about it called Woo Woo. She and my wife Emily and I used to sit around till 3 a.m. in various Manhattan restaurants having drinks and talking about ghosts and yes, laughing about them too. She loves this stuff. Oh, Scott, that's terrific. And now we need to get to the talking points. I know, I know. I'm just saying the show is great. <laughs> yes, it's so indeed. well produced. Yes. And Rachel's co-host is. is a lifelong friend of hers, Irene Bremis. They have great chemistry. So find and subscribe to Woo Woo, where you'll find Rachel Dratch getting Woo Woo, discussing stories <laughs> of the unexplained, the eerie, and otherworldly with her funny friends in her new comedy podcast, Woo Woo with Rachel Dratch. <laughs> and what a great name for a show. It's just so much fun to say. And if you love the woo like we do, we know you will love Woo Woo too. Irene and Rachel invite guests to share stories they may only tell a trusted pal who will not judge. Just like us. Psychics? I want to hear what they have to say. Spirits? I do enjoy a cocktail now and then. Astral projection? I'm projecting right now as we speak. Check, check, and check. Sure, you may think we live in a world where there's a logical explanation for anything out of the ordinary, but after you spend some time with Rachel and her pals, you might have your doubts and find that you too are woo-woo. I've been called worse. Join Rachel, Irene, and friends in a comedy podcast that turns the mysterious into a lively conversation among kindred spirits. Search for Woo Woo with Rachel Dratch wherever you're listening now. Hi, I'm Scarlett, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends, the best podcast this side of the asteroid belt. Is there any evidence left of any of these clipped items that that had a crescent shaped clipping, which I found very symbolic in all the materials that was left over. Do you think there's anything, a, a shirt with a handprint burned into it, a <laughs> a boot that's cut into a spiral? Do you think that there's anything left of evidence? I don't think there's anything left from the clipping. I do think that there's there are things left over. For instance, Georgetown University mm-hmm. has the cradle where um, one of the McCaskey's children was attacked. Right, um, right. By whatever this entity was. And they still have it on display. Yeah, you have a picture of it. It's uh, fascinating mm-hmm. to think that, again, it's like any evidence that something weird touched this item. <laughs> and there's the item. In the Woodstock letters version here, there is another mysterious stranger that shows up. So we're talking uh, the account published in about 1907, reading from Mike's book here from Woodstock College from uh, years of the publication from 1872 to 1969. Quite a run. And it's a Catholic narrative, again, so here's what we have uh, that I found on page 24, because as the Woodstock narrative goes on, if foretold events, which were always verified and explained the meaning of many others, 
we're talking about the messages here, there is another messenger that shows up. So reading from Mike's passage here from the Woodstock letters, upon one occasion, Mr. Livingston and his family were together in one room when there appeared among them a young man, very poorly clad, and though it was a bitterly cold day, barefooted. They asked him where he came from, and he answered, from my father. Where are you going? I am going to my father, he said, and I have come to teach you the way of him. And he stayed with them for three days and nights, three being, I think, very uh, <laughs> symbolic here instructing them in all the points of Christian doctrine. And they asked him if he was uh, was not cold, and they offered him a pair of shoes, and he replied that his country was neither hot nor cold. Uh, so he's from a nether region, a, a different world. And when he left the house, uh, the same idea occurred to each of them. They had not noticed when he came in, so they would watch and see what direction he took when going away. They saw him enter a lot in the front of the house and then disappear. So he disappeared in front of their eyes very mysteriously. But the point here is that it sounds like they were visited, as Hesler was saying, by a, a God, or in this case, Jesus, or something representative of, of, like, of Jesus, talking about his father and the way of his father, and instructing them, and then just after three days making a mysterious disappearance. Is that what you think the story element is? Yeah, I, I, you hit the nail on the head. And I was, that part of the story always bothered me because— Who's just sitting around the living room and somebody shows up in their house and they're like, hey, hang out. Barefoot. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, and we're totally. going to basically listen to, well, I, again, there's no TV or internet. So uh, right. if a stranger shows up, you invite them to play cards or have meat stew or whatever the case is. I think people are a lot more hospitable. Wait, he didn't knock on the door. He appeared in their living room. Yeah. <laughs> I had friends like that in college. <laughs> they just, well, I noticed if you have European friends, they think nothing of coming to America to stay with you for three weeks. To their credit, though, you were welcome to stay with them for long periods of time. But here in America, it's like, as Twain said, after three days, fish and visitors start to stink. So, <laughs> but this is early America, and they brought a lot of their European traditions with them. And it is a very strange, that, that's what struck me about this story. And you also see a an appearance of some kind of deity a lot in UFO stories. And all these other paranormal stories are often make mention of Orfeo Angelucci, and in one of his last visits, he's down by, he's half a mile from where I live right now, down by the LA River, and on the fence there, he sees a vision of Jesus come off the cross and approach him, and then turns into, I think, morphs into the alien visitor that he was communicating with. So there's always this mysterious one last visit, it seems, and the last one is, is metaphorical for Christ. And so, yeah, this is an odd thing, but it appears in a lot of stories, but it's weird that it's stuck into this narrative just kind of willy-nilly, and then he just vanishes. And like, well, there you go. He just came for three days of, of a mini-seminar and disappeared. But it, it is kind of on the nose, I guess, as they would say. Yeah, and I find it just as weird that the voice stuck around for 17 years and then it just left I, yeah. for no reason. Right. So in terms of that and the differences between, of course, we see these things differently because of our approaches, but the differences between like the voice being something that people actually experienced as opposed to a story that's just being passed on for a reason. So let's say that it's, that it wasn't something people experienced. There's this idea that's put forth uh, that you mentioned in the book of the whole thing just being a play for the land, possibly right. by yeah. the Catholic church. But then Later, you point out that they let it sit for uh, how long? Hundred years or so before? Very long time. Before they um, made I, use of it, 
but then yeah so that's interesting but then on the other hand and it was prophesied that it would the land that would come into use and in the way that it's being used now right by the voice yeah the by the voice okay so then the question becomes if the voice is a not a paranormal event, but like a, a folkloric element and this thing that's being told for these long periods of time, what was the point of that, you think? If it's non-paranormal, which is obviously what I would think you would think, what would be the point of the uh, that activity? Why do you think that I would assume it's non-paranormal? Because <laughs> I don't think you believe in it. <laughs> that doesn't mean he can't mention it. It should they, be. The belief is a different thing. Right. Okay. Okay. I don't try to pick a side. I think uh, something happened for sure, or else all these stories wouldn't have been told. Well, like the, with the 17 years of The Voice, somebody could come along at 20 years and say, this has been going on for 17 years. And one person says that, and then you think the thing's been happening for 17 years. How spread out are the details of The Voice interactions? Are they, they Do they cover the 17 years? They don't cover the 17 years. They basically stop when he moves to Pennsylvania in 1809. Right. But Father Glidson says uh, that he would visit Adam up until he died. Right. He said that it occurred for 17 years. So it was still happening in Pennsylvania when he moved there. Like, then that does come back around again to kind of the players in this story. Let's just do a little bit of an overview. We have Adam Livingston and his family, living or Livingstone mm-hmm. or Livingston, which was an anglicized version of Liebenstein. Correct. His family had immigrated from Germany, right? Yes. And with regard to the distaste for the Catholic Church, that was related to experiences that his family had had in Germany before coming over. His father specifically. Right, right. The region that they were from had been predominantly Catholic for decades, and then um, the ruling party that took over was Catholic, and when that happens, if the state religion becomes Catholic, and so that's why they, they decided to move to America. So that contributes to this overarching idea of him coming over, he's having this problem, and then him not wanting to seek help from the Catholic Church to resolve the problem. And then the long in the long-term version of the story, eventually he comes over to the Catholic Church and things are made better, except they weren't really because there was an exorcism, but it didn't exactly work. There was more than one exorcism, too. That's yeah. another story plot that gets played out a lot in the Catholic versions is in, you know, the Episcopalians tried an exorcism and their Bible got put in a chamber pot. And, you know, so. <laughs> well, right. not, not only that, the uh, the folklorists, I, I love that too, because it, uh, well, in the story, of course, you have several different groups coming and nobody can help. First of all, circling back to the Kent Paranormal Weekend, when we did meet the Haunted Housewives, Kathy and Teresa would tell stories about them doing ghost hunts in their area and their church-going folk. And I believe that the church, people would ask them like, hey, can you check this out? And they said, yeah, did you did you ask your ministers? Like, no, they won't even come to the house. Methodists, Presbyterians, anybody else besides the Catholics won't even show up or they, they won't. Uh, if they do, uh, we've heard many stories where they get chased out. Uh, I mean, we're not talking 1820 here, we're talking 2020. So that's a very common thing. They're just not really equipped. And uh, Reverend Matsky, that you talk about in the book, who's also very connected to uh, small town monsters and a terrific source uh, for information in that regard, will say that, well, we have some books. He said, we don't really have any instructional guides on that. Like there's a book of like weddings and funerals and how to do perform rituals for those, but unlike the Catholics who have manuals on these things, which are hundreds of years old, they just don't have 
the equipment for it. And they don't necessarily believe in that realm, although they do think that there possibly is spiritual oppression. Reverend Maskey would say like, well, first let's rule out the other natural causes, perhaps mental health issues and, and other such things, uh, taking a rational approach to it. But in this case, yeah, we have to come and investigate because no one else will look at it, not even their, their clergy people. And so uh, they don't even mention it because they get made fun of at church. And even uh, Teresa and Kathy have gotten uh, criticized at their own church because they look into this stuff. And of course, their response is, well, what about the Holy Ghost? Isn't that a spirit? Like, well, that's something different. We're not trying to contact them with a 1980s recorder. I heavily hinted in the in my third or fourth chapter, I can't remember mm. which, but if there was an exorcism that happened, well, I, I think there were a few. I don't think it worked. That is very, very, very common that we hear that somebody's brought in and to this point that they tried other ministers of other of other denominations even, being open-minded and just sick and tired of being sick and tired of this thing harassing them. And they brought in some folk medicine practitioners. I thought this was interesting. They, they bring in herbs, a book, and then riddles to mm -hmm. maybe confound the spirit. And those also ended up in the BAM pot, in the chamber pots. It's, it's yeah. like, yeah, I don't care who you are. Yeah, it's like, I don't <laughs> care who you are, what your, what your deal is or what you believe in. That's literally going into the crapper. And mm -hmm. first of all, it is part of the trickster spirit in that it's a joke. It's a prank and a statement, and it's irreverent. And that also is very prevalent in all these stories is this, well, at first, this spirit being very irreverent to, and also maybe mocking the beliefs of the people there, quoting scripture and things like that. And then later, this is what I got from the wizard clip, is that this voice is very demanding in, in hours of prayer and fasting and belief and doing all these duties. Meanwhile, you're trying to take care of a farm, and that's a lot of work. But it's also, it seemed to me like it, it was having them do all this stuff that they were willing to do, but it also ultimately was a joke. Like, look what I can get you to do, all this crazy, goofy stuff, and you're just going to do it, because I'm telling you, like, this is the way. And so it was almost, it seemed to me like you alluded to in the book, like a cruel joke. But also, whatever it is, it takes a lot more than just one exorcism or one showing of the priest. Like, you got to do it over and over again. And sometimes it never goes away. Sometimes it's like, oh, two or three, and now things are quiet. Or they're quiet for a while, then it kicks up again. Anyway, that's just a very common thing about, that you'll hear from uh, ghost manifestation stories and spirit oppression stories is that it usually doesn't work in one shot. The Catholics claim that the exorcism was successful and that the spirit was, the, the next spirit that came was the helpful one. It was a different spirit, but mm. I'm, I'm just not so sure because... It did a lot of the same things that we read in these other stories, like right. the devil glim loose and the bell witch. It kept them sleep deprived constantly. It would physically attack them. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> that I would claim that's helpful. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it it shattered a mirror and berated the children that were trying on dresses because they weren't modest enough for right, them. Right. I try usually not to um, let my own thinking come through in the book, but in the stuff that I write. But this was tough because yeah, it just to me it was evident that this claim that the some of the church narratives were making that this thing was helpful was like you said it was making fun of them and that's something that kate Batts did quite a bit right because it, it also reminded me and i'm not catholic but you hear the stories of the nun that racks your knuckles with a ruler again and again and again and at some point it's like 
okay, I get it. I'm not, you know, you're very strict and I'm trying to learn this stuff, but like at some point you people react against it. <laughs> you know, they, I've mm-hmm. had enough of that. I've had enough of the, uh, the, the abuses of, uh, past generations. And, you know, there's a line with everything in this case, at least with the one story that is more the Catholic version is that, well, they did all this stuff. And again, it, uh, it was very time consuming. It was annoying. It was it was a lot to ask, but they did everything. And you would still have the spirit criticizing them constantly. And again, it got physical and angry with them. And so is that the loving instruction <laughs> that we're, we're told is uh, to be expected? Or is that, again, something that that's the feeling I got? And you don't get that in any of the narratives, but I, I do agree with you in that I don't know if it was a different spirit, but whatever this thing turned into or what replaced it was also something that was, it's not cruel to be kind, but just it was making him jump through hoops to see if they would do it. And they did it. And then it was like, okay, I'm kind of bored. I'm gone. And then just, unlike yeah. the Bell Witch who said I would return in, uh, was it 100 years? 107, wasn't it? Yeah, first it was seven years and then it was 107 years. The grandson of John Bell in 1936 or so wrote a book in anticipation of the Bell Witch's return, but it never came back, as far as we know. Although there are still residual weirdnesses that go on there. Absolutely. It was supposed to come back in 1935 when Charles, Charles Bailey Bell's book came out in 1933. So uh, he wrote it before it was supposed to happen. Right. Well, again, I'll make the connection between the paranormal phenomenon or UFOs or injured cold or anybody else and saying, we'll be back at this time. And then they never come back. There's always that unfulfilled promise of return. And in the Woodstock letters, that passage ends with, it may be interesting to add that the voice made a prophecy that remains to be fulfilled. Now, this is me speaking. Uh, A lot of the other prophecies the voice made did come to pass. But this last one here, continuing to read, it was that the property in Virginia left to the church by Mr. Livingston when he was removed to Pennsylvania in 1820 or sooner would be a great place for prayer and fasting before the end of time. It was probably the scene of the miraculous manifestations. That did come to pass, didn't it? About over 100 years later. Right. Yeah, 1970s. I can't remember the exact uh, year it was open, but um, Priestfield Pastoral Center is still in existence today. Yeah. I visited there a few times. It sounds like a beautiful place. It's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I know. Well, after you wrote about it, I was like, oh, this, uh, I want to go there. Yeah. And they still talk about weird things happening there. So yeah. I talked yeah. to a caretaker for quite a bit. She was great. There was that story about the, uh, the person who had gone into the woods with his wife or girlfriend or something and tried to take a picture by the stranger's grave and mm-hmm. came running out of the woods. And because yeah, it shattered in his hand. Yeah, the camera <laughs> shattered in his hand. But, yeah, yeah. but one thing about the stranger's grave, and that's, you know, that's a prominent part of this story. Again, all the different players and stuff and whether or not the stranger ever actually presented themselves at the crux of the story. And then the grave is out there and they, you know, there's a story where they had to consecrate the ground and all of these different things. You also indicated that they they did try, they did run uh, GPR, ground penetrating radar, over the gravesite and were unable to find anyone actually buried at that particular spot anyway. That's right. In 2020, when the place shut down because of COVID, right. they put it up for sale because they were losing too much money just trying to maintain it. And before they did that, they wanted to do their due diligence and make sure that um, that they were conveying what they were trying to sell. So they did GPR looking for a graveyard and... Um, weren't able to find one. Okay. So that's interesting. Mike has a great list of analytical alternatives, I guess you could say, or he has a phrase for it, that 
you're trying to think about all the logical arguments and people would say like, well, you know what, this is just a big swindle and ghost story. As Scott and I like to say, it's the Scooby-Doo angle where we're going to frighten you out of your property. And, yeah. uh, and if that's the case, though, yes, Livingston donated or he sold it for a dollar to the Catholic Church, essentially around 34 acres. Yeah, they so they ended up with the property at a reasonable price, but never did anything with it for over a hundred years. Well, there was a there was a legal issue. So they there was a trust that was I think at the time there was a, an issue in Virginia with Virginia law mm. about the church being able to own property. So they formed a trust of parishioners that owned the right. rights to the property, and then eventually. They all died off, but one family member, and then they started using the property for themselves. Right. And so the church had to win a, win a, a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the, the Mangini, Mangini family? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the church won the lawsuit, I think, in 1928 wow. to get the property back. But even then, they didn't do anything with it for another 50 years. For me, that uh, kind of removes the logic angle on that. You know that it was a swindle of sorts. Yeah, but fifty hundred years to the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, it's like sitting at a stoplight. Hey, well, unless it's <laughs> right. If you're talking historically, but as we know, dastardly. Did you read are... Pillars of the Earth? I mean, they took five hundred just to build one. <laughs> right, but see, that's a different thing, though. You know that you're doing it for posterity. This, as yeah. we've seen, there are a lot of. Well, I want you to talk about some of the real life players because they are interesting. Reverend Cahill, for one, and uh, some others that actually came in and were involved. Big characters, big personalities here. Some of them reminding me of the exorcist case with Ronnie. Just physically strong priests have to come in and restrain people and deal with uh, poltergeist violence. But in this case, you know, with the property here, what we saw is that generally if somebody's doing something untoward or illegal, it's for personal immediate gain, not for generations later. Like it's it's usually self-interest, like, nah, we can use this now, or this is going to benefit us, uh, you know, because like, look, we got to eat, we got to have a place to, uh, even though we've uh, disavowed uh, earthly delights, we're going to take advantage of what we can at the moment. So for me, that it lessens the Scooby angle on that. For sure. And I don't think the churches have ever made any profit from the property. Right. They use it for Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, there's a abused woman mm-hmm. uh, group that meets there, and they use a lot of the dormitories for homeless. So yeah. it's a wonderful place for what they do with, with the little funds they have. Quick anecdote about that. When you were visiting, and I guess you had your own, this is kind of an emotional, profound moment of peace, I think, with the property. Mm-hmm. That's aside from anything strange. And when you were meeting with the caretaker, and they were talking about a priest coming in from the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. to do a blessing or cleansing or maybe an exorcism on the place because there was still so much activity there. And it's also something that I've heard quite a bit with mediums and ghost hunters where perhaps the reason that there is still a lot of spirit activity and paranormal activity is because of the nature of the people that now occupy it and are treated there and that they're coming with a lot of personal problems and a lot of emotional turmoil. And that maybe causes a rift and a thin place to occur. And as they're healing and getting over their own personal things, people like that often are vulnerable. And as Reverend Maskey says, it's, uh, you know, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, it makes you a little vulnerable. Your veil is a little thinner and you're perhaps more susceptible to these kinds of uh, forces. So anyway, that I just thought that was a very fascinating angle from the priest of like why stuff's still happening 
but it may be just the ground itself. There's something about this place. I don't know. It either spawned the story, the story created it, or that, you know, it, or it has nothing to do with it. But it's just a very nice place that people over the generations have focused on. Mm -hmm. Hello, everyone. I'm Derek Smith, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Another common story element in all of these is there's something about haunted fireplaces. There's something about the hearth and fire and stones. Uh, stones had dropped, big stones had dropped down, I guess, from the chimney and rolled around on the floor spinning that uh, that the Livingstons and their, uh, some of the, I think, parishioners that came by had to wrestle with. And so things coming from the fireplace or balls of fire coming out from the hearth and, and the fireplace rolling around the floor, but also spontaneous combustion, the beds, that would be the most <laughs> annoying. And uh, yeah, beds and clothing catching fire. Where else, where else do we hear that? Sally House, take a drink. Uh, we just have to say that for legal reasons. Uh, in that, so fire is a big part of it. And then uh, I'll just leave you with this quick anecdote. I recently was talking to a uh, terrific producer who worked on a lot of ghost shows decades ago and had been all over the world, Europe, uh, in some of those haunted locations. And I asked them, uh, okay, have, you know, here's the common question. What have you seen? And I was like, well, you know, there was a lot of things I think that were overreacted to, uh, that I didn't really notice, but there was one time, and then this is the caveat of everybody who doesn't believe there was that one time where this thing happened. And, and she said that, they were scouting a location with the with the caretaker of this very just ancient castle, I think. It was a bare room that had been cleared out and you could visit it. But as they were standing there, broad daylight, a stone from the fireplace hearth came out vertically, horizontally from the mantle and just did a 90 degree drop right in front of them. And they all just st stood there and she was like, oh my goodness, that that's undeniable. That just happened. And the host says, yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. So <laughs> it's a different perspective, but there's something about, and maybe it's because it's the centerpiece of the family and activity and cooking and life and nourishment, but also cleansing and to get your attention and it's primitive TV. There's something about the fireplace and fire being a focal point of it. I think it was interesting that it started off really kind of annoying. Yeah. You know, it irritate people to get them to yell at them and it would, um, you know, it make them run around trying to put out fires or sleep in the cold or stay awake. And then it started destroying things. It got angry. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's akin to torture. I mean, sleep deprivation and noises and I mean, poked it's, with it's needles, akin, which comes back to that whole trickster idea, but it can't, you know, I find myself wondering as the story is going on, it's like, well, did the story become more and more torturous because the Catholic church wanted to convey you know, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't come over and hang out with us and do our things. When I'm trying to figure out from this, all of this, with like, did something really happen? And if so, what? Without all the embellishment. And the question is, what's in there? Because, you know, there's things about this story that when you look at all of it and you think, oh, well, this could be misunderstandings or something that got blown out of proportion, or maybe the neighbor's didn't like them and they would stand outside the house at night and yell things and scare them at three in the morning. And they just leaned into the fact that it was a disembodied voice and didn't go outside and try to find the person or whatever, you know, those things. Of course, there's a difference between that and having your clothes being clipped apart while you're wearing them. 
and not knowing it, if those accounts are all true. But I wonder about the the parts of the details. What is the underlying root here? And I want to circle back to that, but that's just, a, I want to put that out there, ruminate on it for a second. I, the one piece of evidence that really got me was this 18th century version of a Twitter battle between Mary Livingston and that priest Phelan yeah. in the newspapers. Yeah. Where she definitely was, I don't think she ever converted to Catholicism. She yeah. felt that there was something going on there. But she also admitted that things were happening in the house that she couldn't explain. Right, right. I don't know why she would um, admit that if it wasn't happening because it helped the Catholic claim. By the way, that is, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of those points that makes you think this is, there's something, there's something real or inexplicable at the root of this or something that people don't understand. Of course, this is before, if you're looking at the rational mundane explanations, this is before people understood what the presence of uh, CO2 or, you know, other things like that, that might cause you to have issues. They weren't looking at that kind of thing or other environmental issues that maybe would cause strange things to happen or you to perceive strange things happening. But they're at that point where they're like, this did happen. It just gets so sophisticated. It starts out kind of simple and, you know, someone's putting a rope across the road. That could be a kid, whatever. But then it gets more and more complex with the omniscience of the voice and all of that. It's like, again, reminds me of the Bell Witch. One of the things that you had uh, mentioned when you recounted uh, near the end of the book and similar stories, The Devil of Glen Luce, which all the similarities in that. There, were, There's one point here, wh- which I thought was interesting. This is on page 116. The haunting began as a random shrill whistling in and outside the house. According to witnesses, the sound was similar to the resonance made by toy glass whistles. One afternoon, one of the daughters, Janet Campbell, became annoyed by the whistling as she left home to get a bucket of water and complained under her breath, I would fain hear thee speak as well as whistle. And then the response she heard was, I'll cast thee, Janet, into the well, a threatening voice unexpectedly replied. This sudden manifestation was extra disturbing because it was a perfect mimic of Janet's voice. And what struck me about that particular detail in the, in the Glenn Luce case is we have heard this exact thing on EVPs. We have actually heard this. I think it's a James Willis recording, actually. Yeah. Yeah, with his team member, you can hear her voice on the recording, but right. she was out in the van, like it was inside the house, and it sounded like her laughing. We have also no shortage of listeners sending us emails where they've also heard a vocal doppelganger of themselves yeah, or a family sounds member. sounds like them, or someone who's part of their team yeah. that is not there at that moment. And the other thing that happens is questions get answered before you finish asking them. Not to derail us into EVP. No, no, but, but like, I, w- I would say like these stories, uh, the local legends and lore, just again, it's the chicken and egg. Like I said, if this is a made up story, it's got some pretty good story elements. It's got some good narrative, uh, you know, tidbits here that are pretty universal that people report in real life or, you know, are people reporting that because of these a thousand years of stories or more that all have the same elements going back to classical times. Yeah, the voice in the wizard clip, I think it mimicked a, a deceased cousin of Adam at one point. And right. I know Kate Batts, which did a lot of that, right, Heather? Yeah, she did. She was really good about that. She can mimic any voice, even ocean, an ocean away. That's right. She had a whole like rich little thing going. I forgot. About <laughs> it was that. the no, it was the Englishman. I can't remember what his profession was, but he came. Uh, that's a long ways to go just to check out a ghost story. And then he reported hearing his mother's voice. He gets back to England, 
and she reports uh, that she heard his voice. And yeah. what is he doing there? And she heard some other information. So it's by location. It's instantaneous. And they heard report of that because he sent a letter back saying like, yeah, that happened. That was, that was odd. I don't know. There, again, you wonder if uh, all this is sparked, birthed from some real phenomenon and you're getting parts of it. And then, you know, you get a, you get concretion of other story and legend lore elements that go around it. But the heart of it is really, truly something weird. But also you have some very strange players. If you, well, one, Father Phelan, who had some involvement I think in, in kind of the spiritual cleansing and exorcisms there was, I don't know, he kind of a, perhaps a sketchy character. He ends up being charged for murder of a fellow priest yeah. later, later, yeah. later on. Yeah. yeah. He's the one that um, claimed it was a hoax Yeah, um, early on. And then later was charged with murder, <laughs> <but> acquitted. <laughs> okay. Acquitted. But yeah, just uh, yeah. a character as they would say. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, got into it with, with one of the descendants. With Mary Livingston, with the, with the wife. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah the original in, wife. In the newspapers. And so, yes, yeah. Mary is the, the wife of Adam, long suffering wife. And then we have uh, the other very notable character founded at the town of Loretto. In, in Pennsylvania, yeah, Would you, yeah, speak about him a bit because he's got quite a storied history. Yeah, Father uh, Galitzin is. There's books written about him, and for good reason. Very interesting person. He was a Russian prince, born in the Hague. His father was a diplomat, also a prince. So he was raised uh, very much among the Western European elite. His father was friends with Voltaire and Diderot. Um, That's right. And his mother was a um, Prussian countess. He had a gilded life ahead of him, but he gave it all up as a teenager when he, he came to the U.S. for a tour. So wealthy, wealthy children, uh, before they, especially men, before they joined a, a military tour, which is Russian custom at the time, they would uh, go tour the world, and the world meant Europe. But at that time, the reign of terror was happening, so... It was not good for any nobles to be trying <laughs> yeah. trying to visit, you know, France or wherever he was going to go to. So uh, he went to the United States with a, a priest as his attendant, and uh, he was introduced to the first Catholic bishop, uh, Bishop Carroll in Baltimore. He was originally supposed to go be an aide to George Washington, but his mom became convinced that that was a bad idea because George was a deist and. Yeah. Uh, it would um, ruin his Catholic, Catholic upbringing. When he got to the United States, he became enamored by this this Bishop Carroll and decided to give up all his titles and become a priest in the United States as a missionary. Um, so he went from incredibly wealthy overnight to a poor <laughs> priest that living in the western frontier in Loretto, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it is it is amazing, but but rich with intellectual pursuits. He just. He probably became disillusioned. Everybody's getting disillusioned in the story as well, including Adam Livingston's uh, father with the state of German politics. And yeah, just people being, uh, I think this is another aspect of the story, people becoming disillusioned with the current state of either politics or religion that they're ascribed to and switching it up. And Father Galitzin is doing the same. The European wars have been, the wars of religion have been going on for a couple hundred years or, or longer by that time. and. So I'm, I'm sure everybody that was in the States had been affected by it at one point or another. Not to, to sum up uh, 
such an interesting life yeah. with a couple words, but he has been, I don't know if nominated is the right term, but he, the, the church is vetting him for, for sainthood. Yeah. Oh, yes. I can say Father Glitzen probably was one of the most successful missionaries um, in that part of the world because he spoke so many languages. Right, and so many right, and you conveyed that very well in um, the in the book, uh, just because they needed somebody who could do outreach, and he was able to do it with and not have. And for all these so many other ones, they probably had the language barrier, which made it a lot more difficult. He, he truly a fascinating guy, and that, so where, where the monument to him is that in that you have a picture of is that in the town? That's in Loretto at that's the Basilica. In, that's there. in Loretto. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. the town he founded or this the right. village. Yeah, do you have any idea why they're uh, pursuing the possibility of canonization for him? I would have to look into that more, but okay. I'm sure it has to do with the town and the mission that he set up in right. Western Pennsylvania. It was the the first one across the alley. It's really, it's on the Chestnut Ridge. Okay, now we're so, back to the, the spooky uh, terrain, the, the land being uh, part of it. Yeah, when I went to visit it, I did not know it was there until I drove there and I was like, oh, oh I didn't realize. There, there's <laughs> been another. a few revelations <laughs> with this story for yourselves and the reader, I think. Uh, Heather, just quick question. Mm -hmm. Are there any other heroic clergy persons in any that feature in any other folklore that you know of? not that are on the top of my head right now um not named ones i can think of stories where um, this goes back to like werewolf lore where um people would would save someone that was in like mid-transition um and then were were given uh extra blessings for that from the church but um there's nothing that i can think of off the top of my head right now like the accounts of Father Galitzin and uh, and these priests and the family members uh, who have been writing about it continually, not so much Adam, weirdly again, the patriarch, but you have a monument to somebody who was really involved, and it does, to me, point to something, again, really happening with this. Somebody saw something that was out of the ordinary, you know, in magical, fantastical, more so times than uh, perhaps today, because there's just there's so much noise going on. And uh, one of the thoughts I had in conclusion or an ep epilogue to the story here in the, in the book was that, you know, why doesn't events like this happen these days? Why isn't there some house uh, that's got all this craziness? And like, it kind of does, but in a different scenario, like Latoya Amon's house, the demon house is uh, you know, the Zach Bagans documentary has, uh, has profiled with a, an infestation at least and oppression going on but it's not received the same way. It's minor lore because we have so much uh, other noise going on now, whereas here it's a lot, things are a lot more clear. It's easy to focus on these things. I think that's why they prevail. And you make another point, both you and Heather, that why isn't this as popular as the Bell Witch story? Yes, we had the Blair Witch Project that popularized uh, the Bell Witch. Uh, Loftus Hall is more popular, of course, in Ireland as a local story. Uh, Glenn Luce, maybe in some only in some parts of it being known in Scotland at the time but this thing never really caught on <laughs> and it's as fantastical as these other stories why is that caught on within the catholic community but yeah. it definitely did not uh, amongst the rest of the population and i think it might have had something to do with the prejudice against the catholic community that was very prevalent at that time but also I will be the first to admit that some of the narratives that were written by the church 
are hard to read. They're just <laughs> yeah, not right. It's it doesn't flow uh, right. Yeah, it's not like um, the novel that Envy Ingram wrote. That's very well done. This yeah. is yeah right. Ingram's going to get optioned. The other <laughs> scripts are going in the trash. <laughs> no, it's it's like you said, uh, Father Fanati, who chronicled a lot of this and wrote and received letters. Yeah, his narr- he just didn't have the knack for a good narrative. It is, it's kind of all over the place. It's hard to piece together. It just, it, again, this is all very fragmented. And so no one really kind of came by and put the whole story together other than these short anecdotes that showed up in yeah. these various locations again, and no major book that caught on, or of course at the movie, <laughs> didn't turn into a major motion picture. I mean, Heather, why do other folklore stories at the time seem to persist and survive, even if they're not that great? <laughs> like even if they kind of fizzle out or they're just kind of undramatic. Well, I think that some of it, like uh, Mike said, has to do with the prejudice, perhaps. But then also, in general, if you look at just the terminology that uses that we're using and what sticks in folklore, you're going to hear a lot more about witches. We as humans have gravitated toward that term for good and bad um, a lot more than we've gravitated toward wizard. Mm, interesting. I think that just one by the the gnomon that's used in general could be part of the reason that it didn't stick because it has all of the elements, the same elements that the bell witch story has Mm -hmm. and more. And you certainly can't blame religion in general as a blanket, as a blanket term, religion as the reason why. Um, So it has to be something to do with prejudice um, and also maybe just not written as smoothly, like you said. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Hollywood hasn't picked it up. Right. The poor storytelling, I'm convinced that had something to do with yeah. it because Fanati's monograph is, I don't think it would have been published if it wasn't for that it was published by a relative of the McSherry's. Right. <laughs> so, right. Right. The, the publishing company owned it, it was owned by Mr. Pyatt, who was married yeah. to a McSherry. Uh, okay. So. Yes. Nepo babies from the, uh, from the 19th century. Also bad 19th century SEO just didn't didn't track and that's interesting though is that for lack of a better term it's just not as sexy in yeah, it's poorly written yeah, yeah. just and it didn't play well again another fascinating element of why some stories uh persist and become better movies than others and of course there's some uh i don't think there's any uh, has there been any movies or any other media that portray the wizard clip story as there has been with the bell story no, not that I'm aware of. Um, it's going to happen soon. You probably have started that fire. Um, <laughs> I was say not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Well, let me let me ask I tr- you that. I, I did when I inscribed my copy that I sent to Seth. I said this is the Bell Witch prequel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the other one of the other things about this book is just it's one of the most amazing forwards I've ever read. Um, <laughs> and why, Scott? Why is that? Because I wrote it. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> I, no, I was honored to be asked to do that. So thank you very, very much for that. I was really honored. I'm so to be glad you did it. Yeah. My son really thinks it. I'm an actual person now. So um, he's like, oh, your name's on the cover. No, I mean, oh, being oh, online oh. or, you know, streaming does not count. It just. No, this doesn't. A count. book this is more count. permanent. But that seriously, that goes to. Yeah. After the EMP, this will be around. Our podcast <laughs> well, no, will be gone. There so. is some permanence with, <laughs> with the writing in the that solar flare. It's down there for everyone to see. So unless that's been changed, it's different than vocal verbal accounts handed down, which, again, it's that big, long generational telephone game where elements change. But then 
at least certain aspects of it have to kind of stay the same is that you have to, there are some loose rules. Would you agree, Heather, to a, a good folkloric tale told around uh, the fire and passed down from generations that it does kind of self-govern by its own narrative rules and has to stay within its own guardrails? There's definitely certain elements that every folktale needs to have to keep it snazzy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, something that you'd want to hear around a campfire tale. And something also that's easy to remember. Yes. You can't get into super detailed things unless you're talking about Homer where you're going in verse and, and that's how you remember each particular line. Right, like, right. There's certain elements that have to be really fantastic and stick there for it to continue to go through the generations. You sent a lot of really great pictures. Thank you so much. We'll have those on the website. Lots of great links. But one thing I did want to ask was um, about the signs that are around uh, Middleway. All those signs. What is the number on the sign? Is it just like so a museum a tour stop number? Walking tour. Okay, yeah, good. it's a walking okay. tour. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe it was some advanced symbology that I didn't understand that was somehow related to the story. It's like, why is this 44? Did 44 incidents happen here? Okay, so now I got that. <laughs> I want to go up there so bad. So those are really cool. Those signs are so cool. So it just, it looks like a beautiful town. And Jesse will show you around. She'll take you everywhere you want to see. I would, I honestly, I would love to do that. And it's funny. I've been, you know, as you know, and a lot of our listeners know, uh, my wife and I used to live in New York and we had a place in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, but we're from North Carolina. And every time we came down to North Carolina, we wanted to go around DC because of the traffic. We took 81 and came down through the Shenandoah Valley every time. It's one of the most beautiful drives in the country. And we just went right by this place over and over and over again. And I didn't know it, which is a bummer because we could have just shot over there. So I do know where that is. It's not far from here, really. It's not as far as we went for the Pig Lady Festival. So That's uh, right. <laughs> How many hours did you drive for that? And when the internet didn't even work? I think it was nine, I think. <sighs> it felt so like bad. <laughs> Uh, no, you know, I do. It was so much fun. It was such a great memory for me and my son. He had a great time. You had that cool camper thing. Yeah. Yeah. I still, still got that tent going. So yeah, that's fun. <laughs> I'm curious in the thing that you worked so hard to keep out of this book, which is your personal beliefs. If I ask you these questions, are you going to answer them or should I just not even bother? Should I tell Sarah this never happened? Well, we'll see how it goes. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll see so, if I ask you to do another forward. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ask Forrest. He's good. He's good at he's. he's you know. <laughs> well, Forrest, I don't know if he told you what I inscribed in the book. I, I basically asked him to to write the forward so I could become get a promotion on the arc. I wanted to. That's be right. The director, director of, oh, okay. of Poltergeist. Well. <laughs> you can you can you can run the whole thing. <laughs> in terms of what you do, uh, being a, a disciplined and intelligence analyst in your in your day job, and you know you talk about a lot of ideas in here, which I thought were super fascinating, and some of which we've been exposed to before, and some we haven't. But you, the migration of folklore that moves along with immigrants from other places—that's obviously something that's sort of the kind of thing that we've come across before. And also what I thought was interesting was the possibility, and we've we've touched on this, of maybe different religions counter-programming through a narrative that's already happening and trying to say, okay, see what happens if you play with fire, come over here for protection. But I don't think you were necessarily seeking out uh, any sort of paranormal or unexplained mystical solutions to some of the things that were reported in this story. Are there parts of this mystery that you felt like in terms of events that took place and the evidence that you saw that you can't personally rationally explain or get to the bottom of? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of it can be 
explained away with uh, you know migration to folklore and, um, and additional storytelling aspects of them and added to it for decades afterwards. But that letter series in the in the newspaper that's still I mean you can still find it between Adam Livingston's wife and Father Phelan, um, where she talks about it. And she calls it the spent. She doesn't even want to refer to it as the voice like everybody else. Right. She's mad about it. Right. I just, I, there's emotion in that letter that got me. That's what convinced me something happened. I just don't know what exactly happened. That's the exact same kind of thing that I latch onto when we're covering something. You get down to a, an account, a witness account, that you can tell you're dealing with a person who has experienced something very real to them at least. And then, so then the next level you go to is like, all right, well, was that person being tricked or cause that person is not, it seems like that person is not perpetrating a hoax. So now the next level is like, they're either being hoaxed or something truly unexplainable happened to them. And it's hard to make those assertions either or assumptions either way. Cause you don't know ab about that person that's presenting it, but I love that. That's a really cool answer to that. It's complete, complete coincidence, but I was very much struggling with trying to figure out how to come up with an alternative to the folklore migration theory until the astonishing junk door number one. And, and <laughs> I wrote about it exactly how it happened. I put it on. I was tired. I was going to go to bed. And yeah. then I was like, whoa, <laughs> there's the answer to my problem. I thought that was very fascinating. I was not expecting that towards the end of the book there. And in fact, we'll play it right here. Now, this comes from someone I'm going to keep anonymous here because they request it. And as you'll see why when I get done reading it. And the title is Angels and Demons. And the message is Dear Forrest, Scott, and the Astonishing Legends team. I am a new listener and somewhat hooked. I don't want to fire off a really long email right now as my experience over the last couple of years has been so random and perhaps seemingly unconnected to third parties. I believe that I suffer from bipolar disorder. Extended periods of euphoric creativity, pocked with trough days of crippling hopelessness and apathy. I haven't contacted anyone for diagnosis as I have a history of mental illness, and I don't want to add bipolar, a bipolar label to my resume. It's been hard enough trying to integrate the more recent bizarre and mystical experiences, my surprising conversion to Christianity after being an obnoxious and outspoken atheist for 32 years and navigating the world in the current pandemicized landscape. Also on good days, my ideas and energy for the creation of paintings and music seems to bubble up in my brain, fully formed from nowhere. I seem to receive conceptual downloads and have the ability to weave disparate ideas together as intricate tapestries, in parentheses, though perhaps this is just DID and delusions of grandeur. Although I can be like a bear with a sore head sometimes, I know that the better part of my psychology is responsible for true creativity, and I am reluctant to risk that by introducing brain-altering chemistry into the mix. That said, I'm feeling low right now. I don't have a therapist and feeling a little crushed by the torrent of domestic crises that have arisen seemingly since my baptism in October last year. I wanted to reach out, partly for selfish, cathartic reasons. I've been listening to the series on The Exorcist and Devil's Den and The Vertical Plane, all outstandingly interesting. The thing I am stuck on is, yes, everything is connected. So my story in short, I had an epiphany the day my five-year-old daughter was born. 
Then, bored at work, I began indulging myself in YouTube documentaries on alien abduction. Meanwhile, I began practicing yoga and transcendental meditation and naturally began opening up to the ideas of aliens and all other fringe topics, remote viewing, telepathy, chaos magic, etc., etc., uh, in the spring of 2020 and the first UK lockdown, I made use of the ability to stay up late and began meditating on my garden deck between 12 and 1 a.m. every night. I would recite my own CE5 protocol slash mantra slash invocation slash invitation, sit in silence, and watch. I began reliably seeing high-altitude craft and once one much lower basketball-sized UFO above our house. Just glowing orbs of light and the lower one an unearthly silent golden one. It brightly shimmered and glistened, but it didn't project light. I had to end my experiments reasonably abruptly after a week or two because a nastier side to the phenomenon began to occur what Scott refers to as the trickster element. Cupboard doors would pop open. Cups would fall off kitchen counters. Keys would go missing and reappear in weird places. There was also a uniquely terrifying series of sleep paralysis encounters. Then, that all stopped when I heard a voice that woke me up from sleep and continued upon waking, quoting scripture to me. I have never been a church-going Christian. Both my now wife and then I began having scriptural quotes spoken to us in dreams by disembodied voices and angelic figures, for which we actually had to buy a Bible to reference. After that, prayers, in parentheses, to the God of the Bible, closed parentheses, began being answered directly, and the rest is recent history. Now, forgive me, I am not trying to evangelize you, but after having attempted in earnest to contact ETs, to then encounter something which first presented itself as glowing and benign, but then transmute into something demonic and aggressive, only then to be saved, quote-unquote, by an actual calming presence of something I can only describe as loving and to have authority above the darkness— has led this one skeptical atheist to two conclusions. One, I have been called by name, spoken to, and guided by the Holy Spirit to find Jesus. Or, I am in communication with a spiritual-slash-invisible-slash-off-world intelligence that can not only hear my thoughts-slash-prayers, parentheses, which are obviously non-local to my brain-slash-skull, that for some reason wants me to believe in the Trinitarian God of the Christian faith. What do you think? I would love to discuss this properly and fill in the gaps. I'm not looking for airtime, just some people who approach this stuff with a scientific mindset without all the sniggering and immediate disbelief. Please keep up the amazing work. You're doing so much for the world's entertainment and spiritual development. Kind regards. What about that email helped you figure out where you wanted to go with the end of the book? When I do, even when I'm doing analysis, uh, I, I, I don't play in black and white. It's a likelihood spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and so the alternative analysis section of that book was really an alternative to what everybody will say. It's folklore migration from 
Scotland all the way to right. Mississippi, you know. And as an intelligence analyst, I never deal in fact. We have to have this likelihood spectrum. And I wanted to provide something that um, folks can at least chew on a little bit. But I was struggling. I, I just, to me, um, it's my own biases. I guess I can I can't believe that this, you know, an entity will show up every hundred years or so for the last <laughs> three, four hundred years to yeah. to harass a family for no reason, and then <laughs> then for years on end, and then leave. You know, right, right, <laughs> for without okay, reason. Okay, thanks. Uh, Tip my hat. Yeah. Bye. See you next century. Yeah. So when I heard that emailer, and I think they were from England, if I remember right talk about how they were bored during COVID. So they started practicing, basically conjuring. They were doing incantations and mantras and stuff, trying to invite things in. And then they started seeing lights. And then poltergeist activity started Mm -hmm. happening. And he was saved by a disembodied voice that read scripture to him. Yeah. That is all these stories we're just talking about in the book rolled up into one. Yeah. That's happening today right or right relatively close to today similar balls of fire not really yeah we're not talking triangular craft but similar to the uap right. phenomenon as we bookend this with discussion from the beginning that uh, there is often a connection to religious ecstasy in a way and experiences and visions and uh, characters from biblical literature that show up or connected or transmorph into something else. And then you wonder what's the connection? Well, there's a whole branch or party of UAP researchers who believe that there is a spiritual connection to aliens, frankly, that is possibly demonic. That is possibly obviously a trickster element, even from, (laughs) from members of the military community. Uh, who have investigated on Skinwalker Ranch, that there is definitely a trickster element. They don't know what it is. It scares the crap out of hardened veterans, multi-tour veterans and war zones, that whatever this is, it's real and they don't want to deal with it. And so there is an aspect of physicality, reality, spirituality to this. And as that story, to me, I had to re-listen to it. Scott found it again. I That was the first juncture I kind of forgot what we were talking about when I read it in your book. Like, wait, What? Really, it had that much of a profound impact. And thank you for listening, by the way, Mike. Uh, but the other aspect of it is... <laughs> I'm still a fan. Well, I know that's the, most, that is the most mysterious <laughs> thing about all of this. I cannot figure that out. <laughs> but in reading and listening to that story again, it does follow this very common pattern that we were talking about towards the beginning. Again, Orfeo Angelucci, this cosmic mystical interconnection with, for some experiences, not all, and it's actually, I would say, probably a, a smaller fraction but there is an occult, spiritual aspect of all of this uh, phenomenon in general. And so, you know, one cannot be divorced from the other, I think. And here you don't have, in the Wizard Clip story, you, you, you have a disembodied, omniscient voice that has a lot of physical power and poltergeist strength to it. And there are balls of fire, but nothing comes out of a silver craft or airship, perhaps, of the time as they might have described it. And so that element is there, but all these other elements are, and that has never changed, I think, throughout the history of folklore, is that there is, you know, you have on the other side ghosts and gods and fae and fauna, and you have these mystical creatures like Pan that have powers, and they're messing with us, 
and they're they're playing horrible practical jokes on us, but they also behave very badly or very questionably to our standards. And it's all kind of this big stew of of the unknown. And then it's like, well, what do we have left over that's that's actually real out of this? Well, I think at the very least, if you believe these people or you know them, then they relay an experience that according to the Wizard Clip story, so many people came by, just like the Bell story, and experienced it for themselves. And boy, wouldn't that be something if you could just do that nowadays? It beats the mystery spot. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that you could have this like, okay, that was weird, or this part of the room gets smaller, or it seems to. Here, it's like anybody that showed up to try and challenge this thing had an experience of their own that was to their chagrin. A woman who shows up with her uh, kind of like, well, I have to see it <laughs> again. This is the the Gladys Kravitz uh, speaking of bewitched, and again, uh, bewizarded, not as sexy a title as bewitched or have uh, the same attractive elements to it. You have the We're Gladys Kravitz thing here. of the nosy neighbor. Like, I got to find out what's happening over here. They go over there. She has uh, this woman puts her brand new silk hat into a handkerchief in her pocket so it doesn't get clipped. She walks out of there just spending a few minutes and opens up the kerchief or napkin and it's been cut to ribbons, this brand new silk thing. It's like, no, you can't get away from me. I just cost you $20 or however expensive that thing was. And so that is is different where it's like something... It's identical to the big shot that showed up at the bell house, right? He was like, I'll show you. He went in there and it just like... Yeah, who was that guy? I can't yeah, remember. he he claimed to be a witch tamer. Named right. Ryan said he had a silver bullet and he was gonna... Right. He was going to take care of it. She said, okay, go ahead and try. And he ended up running out of there with yeah. pins and needles yeah. feeling. And, yeah. yeah, he was yeah. he was with Andrew Jackson's... Uh, uh, yes, he was. His cadre. There was one of those in um, the Hardesty narrative yeah. um, okay. of the Wizard Club where he came, a blustery gentleman with a rifle came to take care of the witch and the wizard and it clipped his pants. So his yeah, I, that's, I love that. Too. I, <laughs> I made a mention of that to, to Scott. That's also part of the trickster element where and again, that's part of the legends and lore. You know, we love to, uh, to pass these stories down. Young folks like to tempt fate. It's like, I'll show you, or it's a good place to, for people of the opposite sex to meet and, 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 can, <laughs> And uh, congregate, and I think in this yeah, case they had a the dance produce section at the grocery store. Nah, I don't. Know. People don't. Even, well, those. it used to be the mall. Now it's just your. <clears throat> right, I guess it's right. your phone or whatever yeah. app is uh, is current, and you're swiping right or left or whatever. But in this case, everybody shows up to the house for a dance or a get together. The young folks, and of course, there's always that one guy, the blustery guy. It's like, uh, yeah, he shows up also with his rifle. Like I'll show you. And has the seat of his, I had to kind of, uh, with the wording, <laughs> kind of piece together what was happening. But basically the, the seat of his pants gets clipped out or his, as I said, his nether garments. And what I realized, like he's dancing and he feels this flapping on his legs and he realizes that his cheeks are hanging out. So then he has to sit down for the rest of the dance. And then at an opportune moment, probably between songs, he has to back out of the house and yeah. it's like, okay, he wasn't cut or slashed, or it's like, how dare you? I'll I'll battle you. And it's no, it was a it was a prank. It was a humiliation done to the uh, the overly bold. It would do that. It would play pranks, and then it would decapitate animals. Yeah, Ugh, that's, that's right. The so, ducks. The ducks. Yeah. You're talking about that possibly being known by some members of the McSherry family, right? And them carrying that uh, from, you know, that happening in uh, in Scotland. And only being about maybe 75 miles as the crow flies to Ireland, where they're from. And it's like, maybe they heard that. And somehow that comes over 
And uh, the the women of the McSherry family are more apt to remember this and, and retell the story. The men uh, may have told the story, but then they professionally, they want to distance themselves. So maybe there's some aspect there. But the 75 miles, it, it rang true with something that I, we were reminded of again with the vertical plane story and that happening in uh, northern Wales, I think if I remember correctly, and that one aspect happened 30 miles away from another strange incident that happened with the school and where the computer was found. And we were once again reminded by our lovely UK listeners of the old saying, in the UK, 100 years is a very short amount of time and 100 miles is a very long ways. And it's the reverse in the US. 100 miles is nothing, that could be a commute, and 100 years, well, that's a long time. So it's a lot of its perspective, and in, in this very young or much younger country, we had to get it together very quickly. And in a short amount of time, things have transmuted so quickly that, like with this story, our testimonies and articles have gotten lost. And that's why my hat's off to you, uh, both of you, for digging through and finding these things that are so important, I think, and get lost so easily here, where maybe they're not so much in Europe. You know, we get we get so many great stories from people who are invested, and I'm talking about story research, one of them uh, being Butch Cassidy and, and one of our close uh, art member friends here, and we've com he's compiled so much, and we're going to do something with it at some point. The, the elements did seem to kind of fall together here about presenting the story and Scott visiting, and he's very excited about that, and I was excited that uh, he got to be part of it's a bit of tradition and it's regional. It's like these festivals that you you work really hard to put together just so the people around there can have some enjoyment. Yeah, and, it's a lot of work. Uh, you know, I think Heather would agree that's how we keep stories going and alive and that we're losing a lot of that. And now, not that the old trope of creepypasta's taken over, but like, it's not the same. I don't think it's cherished in the same way. And then you have these things that are phenomena and go viral in our digital online world. But it's just a lot of noise, I think. And it's hard to sift through. And then sometimes something tragic and horrible happens because somebody takes it too far. And that's not how <laughs> folklore should unfold and be remembered. We're just full of memes and tropes now. And I think that's we're getting away from something that was really part of the founding of, uh, of any society, but also uh, America but also America, United States, and the traditions that were brought over, which have a lot to do with how these things come and are shaded and, and the lenses that we look through them in that, yeah, they didn't evolve in a vacuum here, which I think is a great point that you brought up in the book, is that this story may be just a collection of strange events, but the way that we tell them and the way that we understand them and the way that we pass them down is rooted in ancient tradition. And we carry that on today. It's just now that uh, there's a different tool and it's not the campfire so much. It's not the book. It's the device in your pocket giving you snippets of uh, a lot of garbage, in my opinion. So so thank you for what you've to do, writing books, telling stories, doing research, presenting it. Holding festivals. Holding festivals, yes. exactly. That's what I'm talking about. It's all about community and having uh, something valuable and, and worthwhile. And uh, I think that is rare, fleeting, and hopefully doesn't die out with the efforts that you two put forward. It is, it is amazing. Well, as the final word here, I want to end by reading a bit from the epilogue from 
Mike's book. And I thought it it was a really lovely thought and very well expressed. And then this epilogue that he has titled Hauntings, Exorcism, and Mental Illness, because again, being an analyst, he's got to look at every factor as to its likelihood. And that has to be addressed. Is this all some kind of mental health episode from the very late 18th century going in generations into the 19th century? And it's a valid question, I think. But you look at the likelihood of that being the case. And so the best thing also, I think, when you're a serious researcher is you turn to an expert. And that's what Mike has done. Mike starts off the epilogue saying, Pastor Matsky's assertion that clergy should address the potential for mental illness as causation in cases like the wizard clip prompted a conversation with Melissa Davies. Melissa is a longtime practicing clinical psychologist. We became acquaintances through our mutual affection for legends, and I have been a past guest on her podcast, Ohio Folklore. She was kind enough to answer several questions. Well, from what I remember, uh, this is me speaking now, uh, Mike, is that you're asking her the question, could this have been a mental illness condition with Adam Livingston? And folks can read it for themselves, but basically I think the argument is that hallucinations, if this was one, are pervasive, not location-specific. So the fact that this didn't carry on to other locations, other people seeing this and the same hallucination in other places doesn't really point to a mental illness causation, at least. And also a, a large number of people seeing the same thing. And they're debilitating. You can't function without therapy. Right, exactly. He wouldn't have been able to farm, neither would the other members of the family. I mean, they had it rough enough with no sleep for weeks on end, but this doesn't cure itself as Dr. Davies says it doesn't go away on its own. It's only tempered nowadays, at least with medication. So yeah, all of that really speaks to me as not being the case that people were, you know, it's not radon, I don't think, coming out of the ground. It's not carbon monoxide. There was something else, if happening and unseen, it was something else rather than perhaps a more medical explanation. But what I wanted to read is your last question to her that you end the book on. How does your mental health expertise influence your interest in folklore as a podcaster and author, particularly concerning research? Dr. Davies responds, I appreciate this question and how it pulls my passions into one response. Over my 17 years of independent practice as a clinical psychologist, I've heard countless stories from patients about their unexplained experiences. To be clear, the vast majority of my patients suffer mild to moderate depression and anxiety, not the severe illness I described earlier. These very same people report discovering things like a recently deceased loved one's photograph, somehow removed from the wall and placed in the center of a room, disembodied sounds, and crackling phone messages left by phone numbers that once belonged to their deceased loved ones. In short, I've come to realize that there are some things about the way this universe works that we don't fully know or understand, and perhaps we're not meant to. Folklore is born in what remains in the gap between what we can explain and what we experience. Mystic experiences capture our imaginations because, as humans, we are meaning makers. We draw upon our cultural backgrounds to tell a story to make it make sense. For many of us, that means turning to things like religious texts and oral histories, and this certainly seems to be the case with the wizard clip. <laughs>
That's going to wrap up our episode on the Appalachian legend of the wizard clip, America's first poltergeist. A very special thanks to author Michael Kishbooker and classicist, Appalachian folklore expert, and lead researcher and producer for Small Town Monsters, Heather Moser, for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. In the meantime, look for a new Astonishing Junk Drawer from us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Don't forget to find and subscribe to the other two shows on the Astonishing Legends Network, The Midnight Library, and Scared All the Time. Both are available wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Zach Bennett. Hi, I'm Scarlett. I'm Derek Smith. Z-A-C. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. B-E-N-N-E-T-T. I'm ready for more Astonishing Legends. T is in Tom. T is in Tom. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.